Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 8. And can be found on page 1892. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you called us out of darkness into light to be your people. And we can never fully appreciate what that means. But we ask that you help us now understand something of that for the week ahead, for ourselves, for the people with whom we worship. Amen. Well, I uh, took some uh, images from the last week on the news uh, about what people stand for. We're heading for a general election. It's a nice question if anybody dares to come to your front door uh, to ask them, what are you standing for? And we've seen a release of uh, manifestos this week. I'm not going to comment either way on any of those. Um, but we live in a nation in which what you stand for is exceptionally important. And I wonder which of these images um, are, are going to resonate with you. Perhaps democracy is really important. These scenes are from Hong Kong this week. Perhaps democracy is important. Uh, perhaps the environment and climate change are issues about which you feel 
very strongly. Perhaps love uh, within the context of LGBT rights is something which you would uh, say is important, if not for yourself, but for people around you. Um, perhaps homelessness is something that you feel is really important to address. Perhaps we've had enough of austerity and poverty and the impact that has on people. Uh, perhaps uh, we have a heart for areas of education about what should and should not be or sh should be taught more carefully in schools. Sorry, those are value-laden statements. Um, perhaps racism is an issue with which uh, you would identify and say that is just not right. We shouldn't be having this conversation still. And I wonder if those are, are issues which really touch your lives. And uh, perhaps mental well-being, mental health. People actually marched about mental health because of the impact it's having on some communities. Maybe those are things uh, about which you feel very strongly. And the thing about marching and standing for something like that is it says a lot about your values, about what is important to you. We have just heard from Rod and Penelope about what is important to them in West Africa, about bringing people out of poverty and into uh, building their communities through education. So what we value and what we find important shape is actually a way of expressing who we are, what we actually is important to us and what we stand for. Uh, and I think this is a really important slant because I think this, this last chunk of Peter's letter is basically asking this question, what do you stand for? He's writing to a church community in, in difficult but not terrible times. But they're struggling. And they're, they, we've read through this letter, and we've read about how Peter encourages them uh, about the life and the hope that Jesus has made available to you. He's, made, he's written about the call to be holy to be set aside for God, to be filled with the Spirit, about how to live as a Spirit-filled community, about how to live, how the home should shape, be shaped by that, and also how to get by in a world that was sometimes very hostile to the church and didn't understand it. And Peter asks the uh, reader, which is us, to clarify who we are, by asking three simple, well, making three simple statements. And the first is to stand against evil. It's interesting, isn't it, that it's, um, the devil is portrayed prowling and seeking an opportunity to cause you to sin. Early, late last year, when we were looking at the Bible's favorite stories and the story of Cain and Abel, God warns Cain that the enemy is waiting at your door. He's crouching at your door, looking to find some way to upset or change your course of your actions, take you further from what the covenant that God had with him and keep them in unbelief and unchanged lives. And the reality is that if you're a Christian, the devil used to own you, he used to have mastery over you, but you've walked into the kingdom of light. You've walked from blindness to sight, from darkness to light, and he's furious about that. He's furious about it. And he will do anything he can to undermine your belief, your deeply held conviction 
that God has come to you and that you can know him. And he does it in two ways, I think. He does it by discouraging faithfulness and he does it by encouraging sin. I think those are the two things he does. I just want to say a little bit about how I encountered him discouraging faithfulness. Because the night before I went to visit Bishop John of Chichester to, to seek his approval to become a minister in the Church of England was the most tormented night of my life. Quite horrible week. Within our household, literally every electrical appliance in the household had gone wrong. I mean, washing machines break, but seriously, how many times? But during the night, I was aware of a physical presence so strong and a smell so profoundly unhealthy. And I was able to see, literally see, the, the, the um, bangles, if you like, or the armoured bracelets around this thing's wrists as it tried to crush me into the bed that I was trying to rest in. And it went on for 40 or so minutes. And it was the most tormented time of my life. Now, I'm well enough trained to know the difference between psychokinetic manifestations and personal visit from the evil, from the one. And it was only when I stepped out of fear and remembered that God was in charge of my life, that I had given my life to Jesus, that he was going to lead me and protect me, that anything, that it evaporated, that it just went. And I don't, and it's not a nice story, but it reminded me, reading this, that sometimes he is there just to undo you. And it sounds dramatic, but that's his aim all the time. Little ways, in small ways, as well as sometimes really trying to block you. For me, that was a big step of faith, a change of life and direction that would impact the family for the rest of our lives. And he was doing it for uh, his purposes, not for God's. It sweetened the moment when Catherine said, you know what, if he doesn't want you to do it, then you ought to do it. Thank you for that. <laughs> but Peter reminds us, be self-controlled and not allow that sort of space to the enemy because he will get in. He will use opportunities to limit your understanding of what God has done for you. To steer you away from the life of faithfulness that God's promises lie this way. To undermine your belief that you're loved and can be forgiven. And to discourage you from following him because he puts a wedge in between God and you then the truths about God that you are loved that you can be forgiven that you're acceptable that he has an inheritance for you all fall away and that was his work right from the beginning what did he say to Adam and Eve did, he, did God really say all he wants to do is create enough doubt for you to slide away so resist the devil, and he will flee from you, says James in his letter on the same theme. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's a lovely story in Acts, or a challenging story in Acts, where some 
some Jewish guys who thought that they could just use the name of Jesus to overcome the power of evil got beaten up by evil. And the Spirit said to them, Jesus I know, Peter, uh, Paul I've heard of, but you guys, no, no, you're nothing to me. It's only when you have Jesus with you can you really resist. But that power is real. I don't often share that. I won't share it very often again. But I want you to know it's real. I want you to know that there's a, there's a personal evil out there that actually impacts our lives. Well, that's the difficult stuff, if you like. <laughs> that's the good news. <laughs> the good news is that we can stand in Christ's power. We can stand in Christ's power. Uh, Peter is encouraging them to endure uh, persecution and trials. But you can do it in Christ's power. Called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That started, that started when you became a believer. Not some far off. Eternal doesn't mean never ending or never going to happen. It means it started and will last forever when you became a believer. That eternal life that you have with him. And he himself, look at this lovely verse, verse 10, will restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. He will be your strength. He will enable you to stand. And we can be encouraged by that, can't we? We should be reminded that actually, if God is for me, who can be against me? Just before Jesus was arrested, he said to his followers, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The person in your corner has overcome the world. And that's really important because it is a person. Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, can be known and can live with you. It's not just a separate set of ideas or causes. It's not just a nice value that we sort of stamp on church walls. It's, some, it's, it's a relationship that goes with you into your difficult days, like Ros's days. Or this week I've been seeing John Excel. Difficult days for him. You know, God is with us. And we, and we have a person on our side who, yes, stands for faithfulness, love, and hope, but he also experienced rejection, pain, and death. There is nothing that you can't take before him that he hasn't experienced before, that he doesn't know about, that he doesn't care about in your life. And he is the same one who loved us, died for us, for our sin, would you believe, and rose again to give us everlasting life. That's the person in your corner. That's the person on your side. I quite like the Harry Potter films, um, because whenever Harry features, uh, finds himself in a tight corner, help will come from somebody who knows him. Help will, be come, will come from somebody who knows about him and what he needs to do. But that is just, that's a that's wonderful fantasy, but the reality we should live in is that Christ is in my corner and always knows what to do, always knows what to, how to help us. We should accept that and receive that truth with joy because we do not face our trials and our difficulties alone. We don't have to do it alone. And I wonder what that might look, for, uh, look like for you. Your workplace or where you volunteer or, or, or where your, 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 your home Is it difficult 
to be honest about your faith at work? Is it challenging? Is it a, is it a tricky environment? Do you have to bite your lip? Or have you been able to win people over with your attitude and your work? Elsewhere, the Bible talks about winning people over by just faithfully doing your work and not participating in the nonsense and the, and the things that we often do in the workplace. So can, it's something that we take with us. But it's something that we sometimes need that courage for, to be able to say, no, Jesus, what should I do? Well, James writes, ask the Lord for wisdom and he will give it you. Ask for help and he will come. That's the relationship we are in. And in the third section of this little uh, ending here, we're told, uh, encouraged to stand in the grace of God. He remind, Peter reminds them that he's had Silas's help uh, in this, so he's not doing this on his own, and that Mark, um, his spiritual son, now this is probably the Mark who wrote Mark's gospel with Peter's recollections. And we know that Mark had a bit of a turbulent party uh, with the church. That sometimes he was considered faithful and sometimes he lost it. But here Peter calls him his son. He says that, that relationship's restored. That relationship's right. I've been able to forgive and over, overcome the disappointments of this person because of the love of God that I've known. And that's what Peter's about as well, isn't it? He knows about the forgiveness. I mentioned that last week. But he writes about standing fast in the grace of God. And he uses, he draws them to this picture of Babylon, which for them would be Rome, sort of the seat of darkness. We know all about that from Revelation last, uh, before the summer. But he talks about standing firm in God's grace. The true grace of God, verse 12, is the thing to hold in, stand on. That's the basis of our faith, isn't it? God's grace is his loving actions towards us, to bring us closer to him through Jesus Christ. Now, in your lives, he may have used lots of different situations or relationships. Some may have been helpful. Some perhaps seemed unhelpful at the time and were what we comfortably call growing experiences. Do you ever have those growing experiences? Yeah, well, we all should have them. We just don't like to admit to them. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but you may have had Christians in your life at an early stage, or, or like myself, we didn't grow up, I didn't grow up and didn't sort of discover anything about Jesus until I was about seven or eight. And you may have had somebody who led you towards, this is the way, this way works. Or you may have had yourself in a critical situation where you had to turn. And there have probably been times since then where we felt far from God, and he was at, but he was actually working on bringing us near because that distance made us yearn. And there may be times where he caught us completely by, by surprise because we'd become comfortable and complacent in our faith. There may have been occasions where we find ourselves in deep pain, illness or uncertainty, and found him sitting alongside us. There have been times when we thought we were close and God showed that we had some way yet to go. But in those moments, we re have these realizations, don't we, that God's grace is still working. God's grace is still drawing me. He doesn't stop. He keeps pouring out. He keeps coming to us again and again. Come near. Come near. Discover more of who I am. And through knowing who I am, know who you are. 
which is really important because grace changes who we are. God's grace changes us because when we know his love for us, we consider we should live differently. When we understand the cost of what he's done to make, to make it possible to know him, we should live differently. Peter included those in Babylon to encourage, uh, to encourage the believers in this letter to hold fast because tougher times would come. But they were still being faithful. They were still living differently because of their faith. What they proclaimed with their mouths was being lived with their bodies, both individually and as a community. So when it got tough, they, they stood firm. I want to talk briefly about a little, a helpful illustration was, I suppose, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor who during world, in the running up to World War II uh, and during World War II stood firmly against the Nazis, uh, initially as a pacifist uh, minister, but after years of protest, he eventually said, I must stand against evil and stand for Christ. Stand against evil and stand for Christ. And uh, so eventually uh, he became part of a plot to assassinate Hitler and he was executed when he was caught. Uh, for doing that. But he taught that grace demands something of us. God's grace, when he comes in and gives us this, it changes us. And, we, and it's wrong to say, well, that's another thing I can add into my life. It, it should change and filter through everything. You know, they used to say Heineken refreshes the parts other beers can't reach. Well, you know, grace has to go. Sometimes grace has further to go. You know, but it should, it should penetrate, penetrate and change our hearts and attitudes. And Bonhoeffer said this about grace. And he, he made a difference between costly and cheap grace. Costly grace is the grace that God gives us. That's the grace he wants to work with. But cheap grace is our response. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without a cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. And that's the thing, isn't it, about God's grace. To stand for him demands that we're changed in order to be molded and conformed to Christ's likeness. It doesn't happen if we just say, great. It impacts us needs to reach those parts of us. So I've got a couple of questions, you know. Who are you? What do you stand for? How do we know who you are by what you stand for? Who are you? Who do you see in the mirror in the morning? And please don't say a picture of yourself when you were 18. Who are you when, when you look in the mirror? What's the thing? What are the values and, and attitudes and, and things that you see? And if you're struggling to wrestle with this a little bit, and ask yourself, what's your story? What's your story? So I'm going to set you some homework, which I haven't done in about 15 years. But when you get home, find some time. Write down your story. Who were the people who led you? How did you discover God? What were the changes that he brought to you? How did you respond? How did that work out for you? What were the challenges? What were the successes? Where did you see God break through? 
Spend some time. Write it down. Know your story. Because it's who we are. We're a collection of stories. We're a collection of people in whom God has been working. We're drawn together uh, like a collection of stories. Different backgrounds. But we're all here, gathered by God in this place. Called to be changed by this common thread of grace in our lives. That knits us together and knits us and stitches us back together individually. But as a community... It calls us to live differently from the rest of the world. It's the place where we should feel energized. It's the place where we should uh, find uh, comfort and reminders of God's kindnesses to us. Remind one another to live differently, to tackle relationships and tough times together and to celebrate that together. And it should be a place where the marks of God's love foremost amongst us that we're able to greet one another with a kiss of love and in peace. Shall we pray? In fact, can I ask you to stand? <clears throat> we don't do this often, but I think it's worth doing. Would you... Um, Would you turn away from me? Our Lord Jesus Christ said the first commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the only Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Father, we confess that we have not lived and loved you as we could and as we should. Lord, in your mercy, forgive us and help us. And would you now turn so that your back is to your neighbor? The second command is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these two. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Father, we have sinned against one another in thought, word and deed. By being negligent and weak, sometimes because we want to. But Father, we are sorry. And we pray that you forgive us and help us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, would you take a seat? Thank you.